You know, I've been a teacher for 20 years. One of my assignments as a teacher was to supervise children on the playground. And there's always some sort of offense that takes place just within that 15-minute recess, right? He pushed me. He stole my ball. He did. And so, you know, there's some sort of situation that occurs. And as a teacher or as a yard duty person, your responsibility is to figure out how to bring forgiveness and reconciliation to the situation. So there's always like, hey, Johnny, did you steal her ball? Well, and there's excuses, and eventually you get him to admit it. And then you go, okay, you need to say you're sorry. And so, okay, I'm sorry, you know, and then, and then you say, okay, you're going to say you forgive Johnny for stealing your ball. You know, I forgive you. Okay, no, 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 you guys need to shake hands. Shake hands, you get them to like force it, and they're like, mm-hmm. you know, and then they're, they kind of come back to a situation, right? And so there's, a, there's constant friction in our world, is there not? There's constant friction in our families, is there not? I, I was thinking about my own journey this week, or about last two weeks, really. There's been offenses that I've, I've had in my life where I've done something to offend someone, and I had to deal with that, right? And there's certainly been offenses that I've felt from others, just in the last couple of weeks. And if I didn't deal with it, and if I didn't keep short accounts with others, those things could fester and grow, kind of like an open wound that isn't treated properly. It becomes infected, and pretty soon it gets more and more challenging to deal with until eventually we don't want to deal with it because it's just too ugly. We just would rather avoid the situation altogether. And in the end, relationship is sacrificed, and that's not God's will for us in the church. Listen to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. These were some of his words that day as he instructed the crowds. For if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive your wrongdoing. The first thing that we can discover about forgiveness is that it reveals the condition of our hearts. You see, Jesus knew that if we don't forgive others, that our hearts aren't right with him. And if our hearts aren't right with him, there's not forgiveness that's going to flow from God. And so Jesus knew that, that forgiving others is an outward sign that we're right with God, that we're in a good relationship with the Father. Because as we have received his forgiveness, we can freely give it to those around us who have offended us. Peter knew this, and in Matthew chapter 18, Peter's wrestling with this concept of forgiveness. You see, the disciples were always quarreling with one another. Several examples of that are in Scripture. I'm sure there was friction daily. Imagine they were sleeping, they were eating, they were doing a lot of things together as disciples for three years as they were on the road ministering. So there was offenses that were building up amongst that community. And Peter was wrestling with this concept of forgiveness. And so he, he has a conversation with the Lord Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? You see, why does Peter suggest seven times? Because the rabbis in Israel taught, the leaders taught that you should forgive 
That's a concept that God certainly has in scriptures. And you should forgive up to three times. That's what the teachers would say. Not just once, not twice. You should forgive someone three times. And Peter, after he had heard the messages of the Lord Jesus Christ, he realized, like, it's got to be more than three. This forgiveness that Jesus keeps talking about and the way that he conducts himself, the way that he treats us, his grace, it's much bigger than three. So how about seven, Jesus? Am I right? It's seven seems like the perfect number. You talk about seven a lot. Seven's probably the number, right, Jesus? Verse 22, I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him, but 70 times seven. Now, I taught math, 70 times seven is 490. So when Peter heard this, his response was like, okay, 70 times seven carry the one. No, his response was not that. His response was, that's a mind-blowing number. No one can sit there and keep track of 490 offenses, and then on the 491st go, okay, I guess I don't have to forgive now. Jesus said only 490. No, that's not the point Jesus is making. He's saying the number is so large that you can't keep track. In other words, you should always be forgiven. There's never any limit to forgiveness. And Jesus goes on to tell the story. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants or slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Now, a talent was 60 to 90 pounds of gold. One talent. 10,000 talents is meant to just make the listener hear that number, and it's like hearing a number that's a fortune that you could never earn in a lifetime. It's beyond the ability to ever earn it. In other words, this slave was so in debt to the master that nothing he could ever do could repay that debt. It's an enormous debt. And he was brought before the master. Since he had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, and his children, everything he had, be sold to pay the debt. You owe such a huge debt, you need to be put in prison. Pay off debtor's prison. You and your family and everything you own is going to be sold off. And eventually, I'll never get the full debt back, but at least I'll get a portion of that debt back. You owe me. At this, the slave fell face down before him and said, Please, be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of the slave, seeing that slave in that humble position, recognizing the the severity of his debt, pleading for mercy, he had compassion, and he released him and forgave him the entire loan. Can you imagine that kind of forgiveness? I think Peter was like, whoa, that, that's something else. That's forgiveness. Okay, Jesus, you're, you're going with places with forgiveness I, I can't even fathom. Verse 28, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, this is more of like a reasonable amount to owe someone. A denarii was a day's wages. So this is like three months worth of wages of debt. How many of us are three months in debt? Join me in raising your hand. I couldn't pay my debt even with three, three months worth of wages. So we can understand the concept of being in this kind of debt. It's payable, but it's still something that, you know, it's going to take some time. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe me. 
At this, his fellow slave fell down and began begging and pleading with him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. Hmm. I, I recognize that scene. Jesus just described it just happened. And now this, this fellow slave is before his other slave, and he's begging and pleading, but he wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. And when the other slaves saw what had taken place. All the other slaves had seen this take place. They were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had had mercy on you? And his master got angry and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So, Jesus comes back to, I'm going to tell you the principle. So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Man, what a picture. The Father has forgiven us a debt that we could never repay. We are all lost in our sins. We have all committed such sins that we could never work our way out of that with a perfect holy God. We're all indebted to him more than we could imagine. And yet, he has said to each one of us, I will forgive you you, all of your sins. There's nothing you have to do except for bow your knee before me and beg me for, for, for forgiveness. Say, I'm sorry, Lord, I sinned against you. I sinned against heaven. I sinned against everything that is holy. I've made choices that are wrong, and I owe you my life. You have every right to punish me, and yet you have chosen not to punish me. You've chosen to instead allow your only son, Jesus, to be punished in my place. What a gift that is. What love that is. What mercy. What grace. I bow before you and I, and I ask for your forgiveness. And God says that if you do that, you will be forgiven of your sins. And once you're forgiven, go and, and treat others likewise. That's the point that is mentioned here. Peter asked for a just measuring rod. Jesus told him to have a heart of forgiveness and throw away the measuring rod. There's no limit. There's not, no offense too great. You're like, but pastor, you don't understand what my wife's done to me. You're right. I don't. But I can understand the principle here that God has forgiven you more than, any, than anyone could do to you. God has forgiven you more. So we need to stop measuring the sins and offenses of others to us and realize that God has forgiven us of everything so in turn, we can forgive others of the wrongs that they've committed against us. Second principle here is forgiveness refocuses us on the grace of God. When we remember the depths of, the, of his grace, of his love and his goodness, all that he has forgiven us in Christ, we can extend that kind of forgiveness to one another. Today, we're going to dive into the story of Joseph a little bit. It's only 13 chapters in the Bible. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through all of it. Although I guess we're here all lunchtime too, right, Kurt? We have a meeting today, so, you know, I, I can go a little long. 
No, I'm not going to. But Genesis chapter 30 through 50 in your Bible, if you've never read the story of Joseph in its entirety, I challenge you and encourage you to do so. It's such a huge story in the Bible. It really represents the forgiveness and love of Jesus in such a a dramatic way. But Joseph grew up in a very complicated and dysfunctional family. Anybody, uh, you know, can relate? Yeah, I think most of us can relate, right? Dysfunctional families. Um, 11 brothers from four different moms, same dad, four different moms, at least one sister. He's the second youngest in the family, and his dad loves him the most, favors him, so much so that he made a special coat, a coat of many colors, the Bible tells us, to sort of like indicate, you're my favorite. You're the chosen one. I love you the most. Further, he had from God a couple of dreams, and he decided to share that with his brothers and with his family, where they bowed down and worshipped him. Basically, that he, he was the Lord over them. He was superior to them. Well, of course, he didn't win any popularity contests sharing this type of dream. And so Joseph is sent by his father at some point when he's about 17 years old to go check on his brothers, his 10 older brothers, who were tending to the flocks away from home. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 18, we read this. They, the older 10 brothers saw him, Joseph, in the distance. And before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. Their jealousy had reached such the heights that they couldn't stand him anymore in their lives. They wanted to kill him. They said to one another, here comes that dreamer. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. And then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he had on, and then they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat a meal. They're just enjoying their their lunchtime while their brother sits beat up in a pit left to die. Sounds like some really nice brothers. They looked up, and there was a caravan of Ishmaelites. I wonder who sent this along the way. God had provision. There was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, balsam, and resin going down to Egypt. They were trading with the Egyptians, and they were on their way there. They just happened across the brother's path in this moment. Then Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him. Let's make a profit. To the Ishmaelites, not lay a hand on him, for, for after all, he is our brother, our own flesh, and they all agreed. And when the Midianite, Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took Joseph to Egypt. The Bible tells us that they went on to cover up their deed by dipping the coat that they had ripped off their brother into animal's blood and presenting it to their father and saying, I don't know what happened. We found this coat. We don't know what happened of Joseph. It looks like an animal might have got to him. And his dad wept for him. Joseph was 17 years old, as I said, when his brothers did this to him. And over two decades later, a lot has happened. Joseph's now about 37, 38, somewhere in that region. For Joseph, he had been sold into Potiphar's house. You can read about it. God blessed him in that house, put him over that house, and then he was accused of something inappropriate with Potiphar's wife. 
and he was thrown into prison. He served in prison. God raised him up into prison to be the leader over the prison, and then he was forgotten about by someone that he interpreted a dream for. For several more years, he rotted away in prison. Finally, Pharaoh had a dream. And the man who had been helped by Joseph in prison said, oh yeah, I was supposed to tell you about this guy that could help with dreams. And so um, Pharaoh pulls him before him and says, hey, I had this dream, nobody can interpret it, can you? And he said, I can't do it, but my God can. This is what the, the dream means. And, and Joseph interprets the dream for Pharaoh, and Pharaoh goes, man, you have amazing wisdom. I'm gonna put you in charge of all of Egypt so that you can plan for this, this uh, famine that you have predicted that my dream means that is coming upon us and prepare us for that. And sure enough, a severe famine hit the whole land and it included Joseph's family that were back in Canaan. And Jacob, Joseph's dad, hears that there's grain in Egypt and so he tells the 10 oldest sons to go get food but he won't let Benjamin, the youngest brother, go with him for fear that something's gonna happen to him. And when they arrive in Egypt, they go before Joseph. They don't recognize Joseph. 20 years later, Joseph's all decked out in full Egyptian garb. They don't recognize their brother, but Joseph recognizes them. And he accuses them of being spies. He's going to put them to the test. And he throws them in prison for three days. And in Genesis 42, verse 18, we read this. On the third day, Joseph said to them, I fear God. Do this and you will live. If you are honest... Let one of you be confined to the guardhouse while the rest of you go and take grain to relieve the hunger of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me so that your words can be confirmed because they claim they had a younger brother. Then you won't die. And they consented to this. Then they said to each other, obviously we are being punished for what we did to our brother. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us. Imagine when he was thrown in that pit when they were going to sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. He was pleading for them to have mercy. But we would not listen. That is why this trouble has come to us. But Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? But you wouldn't listen, you bunch of idiots. What's wrong with you guys? Now we must account for his blood. I threw in the idiots part. They did not realize that Joseph understood them. See, they had been speaking through an interpreter. He turned away. From them and wept. He's hearing their hearts. He's reliving the pain of his betrayal. The effects of this sinful choice still hurt and haunt years later. So Joseph sends his brothers back home with food, but he had placed their money back on top of their sacks, the money they had come to pay for the grain. And so they freaked him out, and they were like, we don't know what happened. We paid, but we're afraid this guy thinks we're a bunch of traitors, and he keeps one of, the, one of the brothers, Simeon, locked up. Over time, they return back to Canaan, but the food runs out, and they know they can't return without Benjamin. But Jacob is very hesitant to let him go. And finally, Judah speaks up and says, Dad, we gotta go. We could have gone and come back three times by now if you would just let Benjamin come. I promise you can do... It's my life if I don't return him safely to you. And so Jacob reluctantly allows Benjamin to go with his brothers back to Egypt. And Joseph sees his brother, and he's overwhelmed. He has a feast with his brothers. He lines them up by age, and they still don't quite get who this guy is. But they're sort of perplexed, like, how did he know how old we were? And he gives Benjamin, like, 
five times as much food as all the rest. And then he sends them on their way, but this time he places his silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And then he sends his, his assistant after him, and he says, hey, when you catch up with them, open up their bags and accuse them of stealing from me. Why would they repay good, evil for good? Why? And so sure enough, they do. They track them down. And the cup is found in the bag of Benjamin. In verse uh, 16 of chapter 44, they're brought back before Joseph, and this is what they say. What can we say to my Lord, Judah replied. Judah speaking on behalf of the brothers. How can we plead? How can we justify ourselves? God has exposed your servant's iniquity. We are now my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup was found. And then Joseph said, I swear that I will not do this. I will not keep you all as slaves. I simply want the man in whose possession the cup was found to be my slave. The rest of you can go back to your father. Judah then intercedes on behalf of his brothers. Verse 30 of chapter 44. So if I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his life is wrapped up with the boy's life. When he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Then your servants will have brought the gray hairs of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. Your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, if I don't return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Now please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. This same brother who said, hey, look, there's an opportunity to sell our brother. Sell him, make a profit off of his pain. Send him off into misery and into slavery for a lifetime. The same brother who said that is now pleading with that brother, Joseph, not knowing who he is. Pleading to say, take my life instead of my brother, the boy, Benjamin. Joseph has seen something in his brother, something powerful. Verse chapter 45, Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all of his attendants. So he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. But he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. And also Pharaoh's household heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. They were dumbstruck. Have you ever had that kind of moment where you're just like, you're trying to like, put together everything that you're being told in a moment, that's the moment of these brothers. They can't believe this is their brother Joseph. They, they had chalked him up as dead. Probably killed as a slave somewhere in Egypt. And here he is, the ruler over all of Egypt. And they were bowing before him, just like his dream had indicated. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother. He said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be worried or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. That's the heart of forgiveness. That's the heart of recognizing that God had a plan bigger than the offense. And that leads us to our third point. Forgiveness reaffirms our trust in God's goodness, in his sovereignty, 
despite our painful circumstances. See, we think that when we're offended, when we're hurt, when we're mistreated by someone, that that's the end of the story. No. God is writing a bigger story that includes the allowance of some of those things to come into our lives. And he's going to use it for his glory and his good. Joseph had experienced this firsthand, and that had led his heart to forgive his brothers because he trusted that God had a plan. Do you think it was hard for him to trust that? Absolutely. He went through misery for like 20 years while he was waiting for, God, God gave me this dream. I know it's true. God's going to fulfill something great. But man, it sure seems like it's not taken a long time. It's really painful. Where is God in this moment? We go through the valley before we get to reach the mountaintop. Do we trust in God's sovereignty and his goodness? You know, the brothers were having a tough time receiving this forgiveness. In chapter 50 of Genesis, starting at verse 15, we read this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is still holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. See, he had welcomed the whole family into Egypt, but as long as dad was living, they felt pretty safe. Like, he's not going to kill us in front of dad. But now their father had died, and they were freaked out that maybe that forgiveness wasn't real. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brothers' transgressions and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgressions of your servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. He wanted them to understand forgiveness, to receive it. His heart had already forgiven them, but they were struggling to receive it. You know how many times we struggle to receive the forgiveness that is ours, that has been offered? We just struggle. We struggle to forgive ourselves sometimes. Then his brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. You see, Joseph understood what it was like to be a victim. His brothers hated him to the degree that they sought to kill him and ultimately sold him as a slave to foreign merchants. Yet many years later, when Joseph and his brothers were reunited, he forgave them. How can we respond to personal hurts the way Joseph did? We must understand and trust the very same truth which Joseph understood and trusted. God is sovereign over the circumstances of life. God is sovereign over every circumstance of life. There's nothing random. For any onlooker, what Joseph experienced would appear to have been a series of unfortunate twists of fate and circumstance. One could look at Joseph's suffering and pity him in his misfortune. Joseph could, not, could have resigned to being a mere victim of fate, but he did not. Why not? Because Joseph knew that there was a transcendent reality which governs all circumstances. It's the sovereignty of God. God governs the universe according to the purpose of his will. There is no such thing as chance, randomness, or fate. Therefore, we cannot be their victims. The comfort of God's sovereignty is the ever-present knowledge that all things in life have purpose. 
This is incredibly comforting to a believer because the scriptures teach that as far as we are concerned, his purposes are always working for our good. Romans 8.28 says that. We know that all things work together. Wait a second, you mean when somebody betrays me, offends me, hurts me, God, that's within your sovereignty and you're working that for good? Yes. Yes, but can we receive that? Can we respond to that truth the right way? He's working all things together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purposes. This truth should enable us, empower us to forgive others. Truth number four, forgiveness removes our desire for retribution. Do you see Joseph, is he out for revenge here? No, he was testing them. He wanted to see what was in their hearts. But he was not trying to get revenge. He had every power, every authority to to leverage revenge against his brothers if he really wanted to. But that wasn't his heart. Because he had forgiven and it removed his desire for retribution. And it allowed God the space that he needs to settle accounts. Look at Genesis 50 verse 21. It says this, Therefore don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph was loving his brothers. They didn't deserve his love. They didn't deserve his kindness. But he was giving it to them because he understood and had received God's goodness and God's kindness in his life. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 19 says this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. We're supposed to allow God to judge, to allow his timing, his standard, to take precedent over ours. See, sometimes we want that immediate justice, but that isn't really justice. That's just what we think is needed. We need to allow God to trust God to know what is truly needed and to give it over to him. Number five, forgiveness releases our hearts from bitterness, empowering us to serve God's purposes. See, if Joseph was still bitter about what had happened to him from his brothers, could he have been serving God's purposes the way that he was? No. He would have been still so caught up on, like, I got to get what is mine, what's due to me. I'm going to go back to Potiphar and get him because he threw me in prison for no reason. I'm going to use my authority in a way that hurts others or or doles out justice on my terms. You know how often that's happening in our world, that we use our positions of influence and power, our social media accounts, our friends, to hurt and to, to leverage revenge against others? That should not be the case in the church. That should not be the case among God's people. We need to be people of forgiveness releasing our hearts from bitterness, and serving God's purposes. Chapter 45, verse 7, listen to this, what Joseph says. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but it was God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. God had a purpose and a plan, and Joseph had embraced it, even though it meant suffering, even though it meant heartache, 
even though it meant offense along the way, Joseph was trusting in God's goodness and sovereignty. The world's worst prison is the prison of an unforgiving heart. If we refuse to forgive others, then we are only imprisoning ourselves and causing our own torment. Some of the most miserable people that I've ever met are those that will not forgive others. They live only to imagine ways to punish the people who have wronged them, but they're only punishing themselves. Number six, as we wrap up this morning, forgiveness reinforces our conviction that God has the power to change hearts. Isn't that exciting? We can trust in God's ability to change someone's heart. Did you hear what Judah had done? Do you remember Judah was the brother who said, let's sell our brother. 20 years later, God had worked in Judah's life, and now he is saying, take me instead of my brother. That's a change of heart. God can change someone's heart. I want you to imagine the person that's the biggest bully you've ever faced. Can God work in their heart to change them? Well, sometimes the biggest bully you've ever met, you better point your finger to yourself, right? Has he worked in your heart to change you? He has me. Colossians chapter 3, as I wrap up this morning. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, put on love, the perfect bond of unity. As we close this morning, I want to introduce the concept of God's forgiveness and remembering that as a body. We do that through communion. We do that through the body, the bread, and the cup, the juice. And this morning, if you have that, I want you to get that ready. And I want you to do this on your own after I read these couple of verses. And as we begin to respond, as the worship team comes in song, I want you to do that only when you're ready. And only you will know when you're ready. Because you're going to respond to these questions I'm going to leave you with this morning. And I want you to wrestle with them. I want you to deal with them. And then when you've dealt with them, I want you to take communion. Matthew 26, verse 26 through 28, Jesus is in the upper room on the night that he was betrayed by his disciple Judas, sold out with a kiss. And he's having the Passover meal with them. And it says in verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and he blessed it And he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat it. This is my body. And they were probably a little confused, like, what are you talking about, Jesus? We're eating the Passover meal. You're talking about bread. And all of a sudden you're saying it's something to do with your body and it's going to be broken. And he breaks it. And Later that night and the next day they would realize what he was talking about. Because he went to the cross and he gave his body as a sacrifice. He willingly laid it down. Because he knew there was no other way. That it required his sacrifice for, to punish sin. The wrath of God was satisfied, the Bible tells us, because it demanded a price. 
Sin demanded a price, and the price was paid on the cross by Jesus. Then he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, the Bible says that that the life is in the blood. You realize when someone's killing an animal and they, they slit its neck, that it drains out the blood and there goes the life. The animal is dead. God has made us to have life in the blood. And when the blood is shed, when it runs out, the life is sacrificed. And the Bible tells us and instructs us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. I don't understand why exactly, but I know that's God's law. And God satisfied his law by allowing his only son to allow the blood to run out of himself. And his life was shed on a cross for our sins. Boy, this is the question you have to answer for yourself. Have you received his forgiveness? Have you opened your heart and said, God, I've offended you. I've done wrong. I've done sin against you and your perfect law so sorry for my sin. Come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin. I believe that what Jesus did on that cross was for me. And he overcame the grave three days later. He is Lord. I bow before him. Have you done that personally? If you have, you can take part in communion. Because it's for real for you. It means something. Number two, before you take communion, I want you to think about this. Who do you need to forgive? Is there someone in your life right now that you need to forgive? You need to do it in your heart right now. And then sometime when you have an opportunity, go to that person if if you can and communicate that forgiveness to them. We need to get our accounts settled. Do we not, church? We cannot pretend to receive the forgiveness of God if our hearts aren't right with our brothers and sisters. We need to be faithful in this area. Let's respond this morning.